You're listening to the newest episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life, with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 34th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. Today I'd like to talk with you about the elements of a Glasser quality school or classroom. William Glasser, the founder of Choice Theory Psychology, implemented a way of working with students in school that we call the Glasser Quality School. Later, he had some teachers approach him who weren't able to work within a Glasser Quality School, but who wanted to use his concepts in their classroom, so he developed a program called Quality School Teacher. Whether you're someone trying to convert your school into a Glasser quality school or a teacher working to apply Glasser's ideas in your classroom, the following things will apply. Glasser recommends in the beginning of the year that a teacher introduces themselves to their class in a particular way. He likes them to answer the following six questions. Who am I? What do I stand for? What will I do for you? What won't I do for you? What will I ask of you? And what won't I ask of you? The first question, who am I, is really about what are the things you want your students to know about you? When I introduce myself to my class, which granted are adults, so I may share different information than you would, I share that I'm a mother of two sons. I'm a grandmother of eight grandchildren. I like to ride horses. I like to go canoeing. And I love spending time with my friends and my family. The second question, what do I stand for, is about your values. I like to talk about how my number one value is kindness, then integrity, and I stand for fairness, free choice, and personal responsibility. You can talk about the values that are important to you in that section. When you talk about what you will and won't do for your students, you want to think of what is your job, what will you do to support them, and then what won't you ask them to do to put their mind at ease about some of the things that they may be nervous about. Then when you talk about what you ask of them, you want to talk about the things that you want from them as a student and what are some of the things that you won't ask of them as a student. I always like to keep a clause in my workshops which says, I won't ask you to do anything excruciatingly painful. I do sometimes ask people to do painful things because learning can be painful. You have to step outside your comfort zone in order to learn. So I ask my people, my students, to be willing to try some new things and to stretch. But I won't ask you to do anything excruciatingly painful, which provides the safety and security of knowing that you can have a pass. That's just something that I do as an example, but you'll want to think through what's important to you in your classroom. The next thing is creating a need-satisfying environment. There are five basic human needs. We are each individually responsible for meeting our needs. However, when you are responsible for creating the environment that other people have to function in, like parents in the home or teachers in the classroom or bosses at work, you are responsible for creating an environment that doesn't frustrate other people's ability to get their needs met in that environment. You're trying to create an environment where everyone in it can get their five basic needs met if they choose to. So that means students and you. You don't want to forget yourself as one of those people. 
Sometimes people think when they implement a Glasser Quality School that they have to be all about their students getting their needs met, and sometimes they forget about having theirs met. The basic needs are survival, love and belonging, power, freedom, and fun. For those of you who follow my work under mental freedom, I've changed some of the names of Glasser's needs. I talk about connection instead of love and belonging, significance instead of power, freedom is the same, safety and security instead of survival, and joy instead of fun. They have pretty much the same meanings to both of us. It's just that I think that the words that I've chosen are a little more relevant to today's understanding of the definitions. When you look at each of those needs individually, to create an environment where people can feel safe and secure is about making sure that you as the teacher are not critical, that if you have something important to talk with a student, you do it more in private than in front of the whole class that you try to work to make sure people in the classroom are not hurting one another in terms of physical safety. Also, mental and emotional safety are important. So you want to make sure people aren't hurting each other, calling each other names, excluding people, bullying, those kind of things. So when you know those things are going on, you need to address them because it isn't a need-satisfying environment. Connection is the next one. The connecting need is about relationships. So you want to culture and nurture the relationships that you have with your students, but you'll also want to nurture the relationships they have with each other. You also want to help them connect to their desire to learn through your teaching and also to connect to other teachers and to connect to administrators. It's really need satisfying if connection is your highest need to think that your students only connect with you or that you are the most important person to them in the school. That feels really good. But at the same time, it does a disservice to your students by causing them to have a dependence on you. There may be times when you're not available to them. And if you're the only person that they have a relationship with, that puts them at risk. So you want to help them connect and build as many need-satisfying relationships with other people, especially adults, in the school so that they have a web of people who are willing to support them. Also under the connection, you want to create a culture in your classroom of using only connecting relationship habits. I'm going to talk about that when I'm done talking about the needs, so we'll put that on the back burner. The other thing that frequently happens in Glasser Quality Schools is the first two weeks of class, they don't work on any curriculum-focused material. The first two weeks are designated for simply relationship-building activities. During this time, you're doing a lot of team-building, helping people get to know each other on a personal level. When you know people, it's hard to want to hurt them. A lot of times being able to hurt people is about people that are different from you, people you don't really know anything about, and you feel disconnected enough that you can be mean. When you spend the first two weeks building relationships, it will decrease the likelihood that that will happen. Of course, it won't eliminate it because there are individual issues that come up. Somebody maybe got bullied on their way to school or maybe they were bullied at home and they come in with all those pent up emotions and they might lash out at someone in the classroom. That can happen, but you'll eliminate the desire to do it on a regular basis, and people will often feel bad when it happens, and they'll want to make some kind of reparations. 
The third need is the need for significance. Everybody wants to feel important. They want to be respected. They want to make a difference. And they may want to leave a legacy. That's about significance. In the classroom, how do you help students feel significant? You can respect them and respect where they're at. Meet them where they're at instead of expecting them to come to you. Stop waiting for them to respect you before you respect them. You want to respect them because that's the kind of teacher that you want to be. You also want to help kids feel competent in your classroom. People don't feel confident because you give them a pass and help them get a better grade than what they've earned. People feel competent when they really have competence with the material. And how do people gain competence? They work at it as long as it takes to understand the material and be able to reflect that understanding back to you. Will everyone in the room have the same amount of time it takes to receive competence? Absolutely not. Is that the nightmare for a teacher? It could be a nightmare unless you start working in the way that Dr. Glasser recommends. We'll talk more about this when I get to the point of competency-based learning. Under the need for significance, you want to make sure that kids have the ability to feel in control and have some power in the classroom. The fourth need is freedom. This can be a really challenging need for teachers because teachers feel like if they give freedom to students, they're not going to do any work all year long and they're going to go wild and crazy and you're going to lose control. I'm not talking about a free-for-all kind of freedom. When you're assessing the kind of freedoms that you want to give to your students, you ask yourself the question, how much freedom can this class responsibly manage? You don't walk out of the room and go down the hall and have a telephone call for 20 minutes of your classroom period and think that your students are going to be able to self-correct and self-discipline. Depending on their age, that probably won't be likely. So ask yourself, what can they responsibly handle? And then give them the freedom that they can responsibly manage. Students like to have freedom in their learning. This means choices. Does everybody have to work on the same thing at the same time? Actually, they don't. Do they all have to demonstrate competence in the same way? No, they don't. There's a lot of choice involved in how you can teach students in your classroom. Choices is part of freedom, as well as independence and creativity. So do you have opportunities for students to explore and express their creativity? This helps students to feel free. And the final need, joy, is actually highly connected to learning. Dr. Glasser said that fun is the genetic reward for useful learning. I like to call it joy because I think that joy radiates from the inside. Fun, for me, tends to happen more externally. So I want to connect joy, that feeling that we have internally, when something is just so overwhelmingly positive. The joy of discovery learning is pretty darn amazing. And you can foster that joy in your classroom relatively easily. People can have joy as they do wild and crazy fun kinds of things. And kids would call it play. Grownups maybe call it some different names, but it basically is play as well. And then as we get older, and sometimes young children too, they like to have the joy of relaxation We need to create opportunities for people to be able to relax in the environment that we're responsible for, which can help them get their need for joy met.
That's creating a need-satisfying environment. Creating a culture of connecting habits is something else. I talk about the connecting relationship habits a lot in my work, and if you want to hear more details about this, please check out episode 7 of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life, where I delve into the richness of the connecting habits. For the purposes of this explanation, I'll just give you the seven disconnecting and then the seven connecting habits. Some of the things that you wouldn't want to do in your classroom, you, the teacher, nor your students are complaining, blaming, criticizing, nagging, threatening, and then when the threats don't work, of course, you have to punish, and then bribing. All of these are behaviors that are designed to get people to do the things that they really don't want to do. This is never healthy for a relationship and it can create a lot of disconnection. On the other hand, the connecting relationship habits are listening, supporting, encouraging, respecting, trusting, accepting, and negotiating differences. As I said, I go into a lot of detail about these in episode seven, if you'd like to hear more. The idea in the classroom is that your culture is such that you use connecting habits. It doesn't mean that there won't be times when people choose disconnecting ones, but when they do, it's easy to remind them to go back to what we believe about how we're going to be with one another. If the expectation is that you're going to be connecting and use connecting habits, then it won't be hard for people to get back on track with a gentle reminder. Another thing that helps students feel significant and to an extent free is when you, the teacher, and the class co-develop guidelines for behavior, expectations, and non-negotiables. You notice I didn't use the word rules. I don't like the word rules. There's that expression, rules were made to be broken for a reason. If I'm going to make a rule, I can almost guarantee that somebody's going to break it. I prefer to call it guidelines. Guidelines doesn't have the same level of force to it. So if I go through what my guidelines are and the students don't comply, I don't have to get all bent out of shape about it. I just need to have a conversation with them. But if it's a rule and you don't comply, then that implies that the teacher is going to come down pretty hard on whoever broke the rules. Guidelines are about what is the general purpose of what we would normally make rules for? What are we trying to accomplish? I like to look at three general guidelines in whatever environment I'm in. The first one, the most important thing in almost every environment is safety. You want to make sure that the environment is safe and that the people in it will be safe during their time in the environment. My first rule would be about safety. And I would ask people in the class, I'd ask the students, how many people here want to be safe while they're in my classroom? And unless you have a wise guy, almost everyone is going to raise their hand because it's one of the basic human needs. People want to be safe. So when everybody agrees that they really do want to be safe, then it's time to have more of a conversation, an expanded conversation about what that looks like. What kind of things would you do if you're being safe? And what would be some of the things that you might do when you're not being safe? You might talk about if they're younger children running with scissors. If they're older children, you might talk about having a fight or bringing a weapon to school. Those are the things that interfere with safety. 
When someone goes outside of the safety lines, if you will, you would simply ask the question, do you think that's safe? And you would have a lot of other people in your environment willing to back you up and sometimes even do the confronting before you do because they are geared towards being safe. So they might say to somebody, dude, why did you bring that to school? You know that knife isn't safe. It would help you have some support in following through on what the guidelines are. So the first one is safety. The second one I like to talk about is respect because I know, thanks to the need for significance, that everyone in the room wants to be respected. The thing I don't know is what respect looks like for each of them. I like to talk about how we've been taught and socialized to the golden rule. But the golden rule doesn't work when you're talking about respect because the definition of respect is different for everyone. So if I am implementing the golden rule, do unto others as I would have them do unto me, and my definition of respect is different from yours, then that may be one of the worst things I could do. An example I use is the word ma'am. If someone calls me ma'am, I don't feel respected. I feel old and disrespected. But the person calling me ma'am had the intention of respecting me. I understand that and I really don't get bent out of shape when people call me ma'am anymore, but there was a time when that really bothered me. So you call me ma'am in your best attempt to respect me and I am interpreting it as disrespect. That's not cool. I like to implement Tony Alessandra's platinum rule. He came up with this platinum rule for the business world and the platinum rule says, do unto others as they would have you do unto them. If you're going to be around people, it would behoove you to find out what respect looks like to them. So you'd have another class meeting, which I'll talk about in a little bit, but another class meeting with your students to talk about what does respect look like to them. And you get some general feeling or sense of what things would be okay and what things wouldn't be okay. The reason you're not writing out a list of strict, hard, and fast rules is because inevitably you're going to miss something and your students are going to be looking for what did you forget? What isn't in your list? And then on a day when they don't feel like being respectful, they're going to break one of those rules or they're going to pick something that wasn't on the list. And they're going to say, well, what are you going to do? You can't do anything to me. It wasn't on your list. You don't need to make a list. Just have these general guidelines. So we have safety, respect, And the third one is whatever purpose of your environment is. So in a school, the purpose is learning. In a drug and alcohol rehab, it's treatment. In the workplace, it's whatever product or service you're producing. In a classroom, I'd say the purpose here is learning. But if you want to get some pushback, tell your students that the purpose here is learning and you all are going to learn a lot in here. That will automatically cause some of your students to say, oh yeah, make me. I don't get heavy handed on the learning part. What I do is I enlist their partnership. So we can all agree that learning is the purpose for school. Everybody knows that. It's not something that's really in dispute. So if we know that we're here to learn, what happens on the days that you don't feel like learning? First, I want to acknowledge that I know that's going to happen. I know listening to my podcast, there's going to be times when your mind wanders and you don't hear every word I say. It's okay. I expect that that will happen. Perhaps a student went through something really tough the night before and they can't stop thinking about it. Well, they may not be able to learn that day. 
That's just part of what's going to happen. So I give them permission to do that. They don't need my permission. They're going to do it anyway. But when I give my permission, it's like they know that I'm understanding them. When I say there'll be times when you don't feel like learning, and I'm okay with that, what I'm not okay with is when you take those times and you involve other people in not learning. Because the purpose here is to learn, and they're learning. You don't feel like learning, or for whatever reason you're not able to learn at that time. Do it quietly. Find a way to disengage so that you're not being a distraction to other people. If you can do it quietly at your desk, that's great. If it would help you to go to the back of the room and do it, that's good too. If you really need to go out in the hall or you want to pass to go talk to someone about it, that's also okay. You just need to ask. This will cut down on those times when you have one person sitting in a chair while you're trying to teach and they're prodding and poking the person next to them and passing notes, or they're throwing something around the classroom every time you turn your back to write on the whiteboard. There'll be people that will step in. There'll be students who will step in and say, hey, that's not part of the guidelines. I like to think of the guidelines as expectations. These are your expectations for the behavior of the class. Sometimes they'll go outside of your expectations. That is something that will happen. It's a little like learning how to play a game on a field. Somebody has gone along that field with lime, has marked the out-of-bounds sections. Every now and then, people on the field playing the game step out-of-bounds. That happens. It's a normal part of the game, but it usually stops the game because something happened that shouldn't have happened, and they're asked to get back onto the playing field. That's what we do as teachers, is we recognize when people have gone outside of the list of expectations, We go meet them where they are, and we show them the way back onto the field. During the course of co-developing these guidelines, you'll be talking about the non-negotiables. There are non-negotiables in school that, when breached, can relate to a student being asked to leave the school. One of those non-negotiables is bringing a weapon to school. Many districts have a one-year suspension for bringing a weapon. So that's a non-negotiable. Can you bring a weapon to school? Of course you can, but the consequence for doing that will be severe and will mean no school for a year or homeschooling for a year. I would imagine that you'd have some other non-negotiables like physical contact. And physical contact could mean in an angry way or in a sexually explicit way. When those things happen, you will intervene and they need to stop. Not that they can't happen somewhere else, but they cannot happen in the classroom. You need to be clear on non-negotiables. There has to be a very clear, this is the offense and this is the consequence. The consequences are there for safety. Consequences are not there to teach. Consequences don't teach people anything, but they do help you create a safer environment. You're not going to allow two kids to pummel each other in the classroom because that's not safe, so you have to intervene. It doesn't mean that you're going to teach them anything at that point. The teaching happens before the incidents occur and sometimes after, but usually not during. Another area to co-develop is around the curriculum when possible. I know you have Common Core to deliver, and that is something that's a non-negotiable from the state or from the federal government. 
But the kind of co-developing curriculum I'm talking about is you can talk about what you need to teach the kids and ask them what they already know. Ask them what they'd like to know about it. Ask them how they would like to learn about that. And you can explore that before you actually start a new unit. You want to promote active, useful, relevant learning. Kids are very active. They have a lot of energy and they learn best by doing. Working with project-based learning can be really great at promoting relevant learning. Kids can be learning the part of Common Core that you're teaching, but they can be applying it to an area in their life that they really are interested in. It makes the learning active, useful, and relevant. Glasser is a big advocate for competency-based learning. If you'd like to know more about competency-based learning, go to Glasser Institute for Choice Theory U.S., Their web address is wglasser.com. Go to the school section and get on their mailing list and you'll receive a free download of the competency-based classroom. Glasser's idea was that you don't ever want to have a student be socially promoted because they're too old to stay in the grade. You also don't want to hold back a student because they missed some information and make them repeat the entire year when they only missed some of the information. And you certainly don't want to promote someone who hasn't learned the material because all that does is erode their further learning ability because they don't have the base they need to be able to go on to higher learning. You want to promote competence and understanding that everyone learns at different rates and in different ways. It's not a neat process. For this reason, the teacher gives up the role as the sage on the stage all the time and becomes more of a project manager. Kids are seated according to pods, which change throughout the day. Kids are not with the same kids all the time. Sometimes you may put kids together based on ability. Sometimes you'll put them together based on mixed ability. Sometimes you'll let them choose their own partners. Sometimes you'll put them together based on topic. There's a lot of ways that you can put kids together in a pod. Your job as the teacher is to move amongst the pods to keep them on track, to answer their questions, to see what it is that they're working on. This way, if someone is struggling in math and they have not yet received a grade, so in Glasser's quality school or quality classroom, students get A's, B's, or no grade. There are no C's, D's, and F's in a Glasser quality school. You get a B when you are working at a level of competence that's been previously determined with students what that looks like, and of course taking into account what the state standards are. Competence is defined as a B. Well, there are a lot of kids that won't be happy with a B. They'll want the A. They have to have something built in that they can do that's additional or extra that will get them an A. It might be taking the learning and applying it to a project that they want to do. It could mean helping other students or tutoring other students that are struggling in this area. It might be helping you compose the test for this particular unit. It might be helping you grade tests or grade projects from other students. There's a lot that a person could do to earn the A, so there's no reason that B needs to be what you settle for, but B is competence. If a student doesn't achieve competence by the end of the year, they don't get a grade. That doesn't mean that they can't go on to the next grade, but it means that when that grade starts working on math, if math is what they didn't get the grade in, they would go back to 8th grade math if they're in ninth grade, 
They learn what they need to learn and then they move forward. It's also possible that the eighth grade teacher would send along to the ninth grade teacher. This is the area that they need to achieve competence in. And the ninth grade teacher could work with them or a B student who's aspiring to be an A student in ninth grade could work with that person tutoring them to learn what they missed. Another thing that happens in Glasser Quality Schools or classrooms is children learn choice theory. Choice theory is an explanation of human behavior, but it's also become a way of living your life, and it's clearly a way of how you see the world. You want to help kids learn to master choice theory so that they can understand why they do what they do, why other people do what they do, and also be able to formulate better choices for themselves based on that understanding. Some of choice theory can be interwoven into your class lessons already. It's easy to insert choice theory into a reading class or literature. Sometimes it can even be infused into science when you think about Newton's third law of motion is how I sometimes explain choice theory. Or Bruce Lipton's theory on cellular biology where cells are either open for growth or closed for protection. And students are nothing more than a collection of cells. So you want them to be open for learning, not closed for protection. So you don't want to be hurting them, scaring them, because it makes it impossible for them to learn. Throughout the day, kids are getting mini lessons in choice theory, and they're always being taught choice theory so that they'll develop a strong understanding of choice theory by the end of the year, whether or not you've actually sat down and said, okay, here's your choice theory lesson, or whether you've interspersed it in the things that you're already teaching. Class meetings are another element of a glass or quality school or classroom. Class meetings are designed to teach students two very important skills that are often neglected in coursework, speaking and listening. In class meetings, you don't sit in classroom style seating. You usually circle up, whether that's with desks or sitting on the floor, circle up so that everyone can see each other. And the expectation is that everyone speaks in a class meeting, even if it's simply to say, I don't have anything to add on the topic. Class meetings can be used for many things, but a mistake of early teachers is to use them only when discipline problems need to be talked about. That is clearly one use of class meetings, but there's so many others. Class meetings can be used for current events. They can be used for politics. They can be used for learning a lesson. They can be used for contributing what you already know about an upcoming lesson. They could be used for review of material. They could be used to designing a classroom project. Class meetings can be used for almost any opportunity you can think of and are limited only by your imagination. The main thing about class meetings is when someone's talking, everyone else is listening, working hard to understand that person. When they're done, the next person can speak and then everyone is trying to understand them and the expectation is that everyone will have a turn to add to the conversation. Another thing that quality school teachers try to do is keep students in their room as much as possible. I call this time in instead of time out. It's pretty easy to take a disrupting student and send them to the office. But in a glass or quality school, that doesn't happen very often because going to the office really isn't punishment. The people in the office are there to talk to kids and to help them and to get them in a better frame of mind to go back to the classroom. 
Sometimes teachers get frustrated by that because when you send a child out of the room, you hope that they're going to be punished and come back contrite. That doesn't always happen in a glass or quality school. The idea is when a person is disruptive, it generally means that they don't have responsible ways to get their needs met at that time. A glass or quality school teacher will look at the environment and try to understand what was frustrating that student in the environment that they didn't have more responsible ways to get their needs met, and then they'll fix that problem. When you see a student who is on the verge of disrupting or maybe already is disrupting, the first thing I would do is to ask that student if they can get back on track at their desk, and if they can, great, problem solved. You may also ask that student, could you get back to work and come and see me after class and we can talk about whatever's going on? That's another option. If the person is not able to calm themselves in the moment, you could ask them if it would be helpful for them to go to the back of the room. At the back of the room, you would have a place, a comfortable place, a welcoming, inviting place where students could go that are struggling with the learning at that time. If it's a younger class, I like to have a tent or a teepee in the back of the room that kids can crawl into. Only one person at a time is allowed to use it. If the kids are older, I like to have a very comfortable chair in the back. It might be a lazy boy recliner, but some kind of a comfortable chair that they can sit in. might be a beanbag chair that they can sit in and still hear the learning, but not be a distraction to other people. That's the idea of that. If they're unable to be quiet in the room and are distracting, then you as the teacher can offer to go into the hallway and speak with them and give the rest of the students something to do. If you are working on project learning as recommended earlier, they may already be working and may not even notice you leaving the room. The other thing you can do is send them to the connection room or to the vice principal, whoever is the designated person at your school to talk to kids who are struggling knowing that this is not meant to be a punishment. This is meant to help the kids get back on track and back into class. You're not looking for kids to be punished. You're looking for them to find some self-control and some self-discipline. That leads me to the next thing, which is no punishment. In a glass or quality school, we don't believe in hurting kids. And if you look at the Latin root of the word punishment, it means to inflict pain. Pain can be mental, emotional, or physical. In a glass or quality school, we don't hurt children. So we're not hitting them, pinching them, pulling their hair, doing other physical things to their body. We would never do that in a glass or quality school. What we also would not do is anything that's going to hurt that child emotionally or mentally. We don't criticize them. We don't put them down. We don't yell at them. We don't demean them or shame them. We look at the behavior not as the problem, but as the language the student is learning to tell us that they're struggling with getting their needs met right at that moment. If you look at the behavior as a signal or as a symptom of an underlying frustrated need, you automatically stop looking at the behavior and start to figure out what need is it that the student is looking for. And if you can figure it out and you can offer a solution that might be helpful, you'll see whatever that discipline problem was evaporate into thin air. The idea is you want to teach your students how to self-discipline. In self-disciplining, we use the questioning process to try to help a student evaluate how helpful their behavior actually is. I'll be teaching you this process next week. 
I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast and that you'll join me next week when I talk about teaching self-discipline to students. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at www.therelationshipcenter.biz forward slash podcast and remember to subscribe.